Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. Uh, I'm here at Beaufrere with Michael Etzel. Uh, it's April 12th, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we're going to start you off by asking you, why wine? Why wine? Well, um, I've been interested in wine from the days of before college. Uh, my family, my sister and my brother-in-law, my Beaufrere, uh, started a career as a wine journalist, the wine advocate. And because of that publication, I uh, was subjected to wine at a very young age. I can recall in 1973, 1974, I uh, purchased my first case of wine. It was a Cabernet Sauvignon from Chile, Conchitoro, 1973 cab. It was in a wooden box and I paid $2.99 a bottle or $35.88 for a case. <laughs> and uh, I remember my brother-in-law uh, advocating this wine, said it was a great, great value. I recall drinking it and saying, wow, this is very dry and very, um, very challenging to enjoy. But from that slow progression of being exposed to super premium wines from all over the world, um, I got the wine bug. So with the wine bug, you first got into selling wine, as I understand. How, tell us how that came about. So I graduated from college in the 70, 1977 and uh, in the East Coast in Maryland, and where my sister and brother-in-law still live and my family origin and still live there in Maryland. Mm -hmm. There was no job opportunities at the time and so I migrated to Albuquerque, New Mexico uh, where I applied for a job as a wine sales person uh, and uh, thus started my career in wine. Tell me about that job. What was it like applying for it? Did you were you able to cite any kind of experience, or was it just kind of walking in with just sort of the knowledge as a as a as a drinker of wine? Um, many years ago, I don't recall the the details of the interview, but uh, I was uh, the labor pool in Albuquerque was probably somewhat limited. To uh, I was college educated and uh, knew wine enough to get the job. But actually, uh, my job started with as a merchandiser. So they uh, gave me the uh, territory in Albuquerque and surrounding cities, mm -hmm. uh, Santa Fe, Taos, Gallup, New Mexico, Tucumcari, uh, where I would build a wine display in a grocery store for the salesperson. Mm -hmm. But then I shortly was promoted into sales and then got a job, a job offer in Colorado Springs at twice the price, at, at price the salary. And so, of course, I took it where I started my, met my wife and started my family mm -hmm. uh, in Colorado Springs, where all three of my children were per purchased, <laughs> born, <laughs> born in uh, Colorado Springs. Sure. So at the time you were getting into wine and starting sales and merchandising, uh, did you have this idea down the road that you would own a winery or make wine down the, at some point? Well, when I, growing up, um, uh, my first job uh, was working on a dairy farm mm -hmm. at the age of 12, 50 cents an hour. And I worked on a dairy farm all the way into college, summer jobs, mm -hmm. and it was in my blood farming. I really enjoyed it. But financially it was a, you know, unskilled labor job and so farming has always been in my blood as growing up in dairy country in Maryland. Uh, selling wine years later in Colorado Springs. Uh, I enjoyed selling wine. Did it for about 11 or 12 years. 
till I realized that it was just a, a very high stress um, and my life, my, I had high blood pressure and I uh, was just feeling that it was not a, a sustainable occupation for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't know, I just happened to be on vacation in, Colorado, in Oregon mm -hmm. in the summer of 1986 whereby my wife and I stumbled upon this farm, mm -hmm. this uh, building that we're sitting in right now. And uh, I mean, made a, a life-changing decision that afternoon to purchase this farm and uh, raise a family on a, at a much slower paced, uh, more organic mm -hmm. lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I had no experience making wine. I had no experience growing grapes other than the experience of working on a farm, mm -hmm. which prepared me for getting up early in the morning, working seven days a week, dirt under the fingernails, wasn't afraid of that at all. Sure. And so um, just the passion to succeed um, was enough for me to learn the, as I stumbled into planting a vineyard and Earl get over here <laughs> uh, and kind of learning as I uh, progressed into finally a winery sure sure but initially uh, uh, never wanted to become a winery I just wanted to grow grapes mm -hmm. but through economic necessity there was no money in just selling grapes in the 80s, mm -hmm. 90s. Mm -hmm. And so we were forced financially to turn the grapes into a value-added product, wine in this case. And with the help of Dick Ponzi, uh, our first commercial vintage at Beaufort was 1992. I planted the vineyard in 1988, focusing on Pinot Noir. So let's back up in a second to the moment you see this property and you, you talk about this life-changing decision. What was it about this site that made you and your wife decide this was what you wanted to do? Just under 90 acres, a house, a barn, a shop, some equipment in the shop for $129,000 was something that, an opportunity that both my wife and I, here is an opportunity to purchase something that we can afford mm -hmm. uh, because back east real estate prices were not nearly as cheap. Sure. And so basically it was the price, it was being on vacation, being um, loose and carefree. It was being young and not thinking through the consequences of such a decision. It was a combination of different factors. Mm -hmm. That being said, we walked the property and we looked at each other and were in total um, memorized, is that the right word, memorized? Uh, by its beauty and that we could, we could own this for $10,000 mm -hmm. down and they would carry the paper. That being said though, I was a little concerned about the financial consequences of planting a vineyard, so I called my sister and my beau frere, Robert Parker, and I said, you wanna, here's a harebrained deal. I came across a piece of property today, and I wanna buy it. You wanna go in partners? Long story short, he said yes. Mm -hmm. So they partnered with me and we became 50-50 partners. He stayed there in Maryland, and of course I was moved on the property mm -hmm. from Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. So once you got that, once you decided to become 50-50 partners, living 3,000 miles apart, how did you make that work? What was, what was the involvement from either side, uh, and how did you make the relationship work out? Uh, so he clearly didn't want to get involved in the daily operations. He did have a vision on what we should do, mm -hmm. and that vision was focusing on one varietal, Pinot Noir. That vision was going for the high-end market. That vision was um, 
estate grown, mm -hmm. um, just like the traditional Burgundian way. So with that vision in mind, focusing on one wine, Pinot Noir only, which was uncharacteristic mm -hmm. at the time because most of my comrades at the time, the Ponzi's, the Let, uh, the Myron Redfords, mm -hmm. the Sokol Blossers, they were focusing on multiple mm -hmm. varietals because the industry was so young, there was no, at that time, no proven winner, varietal winner. So Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Riesling, Cabernet, um, shotgun approach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But at that time in the 80s, there was some monumental vintages, 1983-1985, um, whereby people were starting to take notice that Oregon can grow Pinot Noir mm -hmm. and make Pinot Noir. So with that bit of knowledge, and my brother-in-law had a not a provincial point of view, he had a world view. Mm -hmm. And he knew what Grand Cru Burgundy was like and the pricing, and he tasted the wines from Oregon that could compare to a Grand Cru. And we, at that time, Dick Ponzi and David Lett, Irie Vineyards, were the top of the price uh, point, and that was $24, $25. Mm -hmm. And Burgundy Grand Cru's were 45 or $50. Mm -hmm. Now they're 400 but back then. <laughs> so he saw an opportunity and so he directed me philosophically on how to plant, what we should do, how we should plant the vineyard. That's dense spacing, mm -hmm. like in Burgundy. Uh, the trellis design and the pruning design, like Burgundy. Um, focusing on high quality clones of Pinot Noir mm -hmm. that would produce wines of high quality. So um, that was the um, you know, I had an advantage, very focused pinpoint direction. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I'm curious, uh, you, came, you came in at a time when Oregon wine was just in its infancy of becoming what it's becoming today, uh, and you come in with Robert Parker Jr. as your, as your partner. Did you feel any added pressure or, or criticism from the industry as, uh, as the, you know, the guy walking in with the, the famous brother-in-law who's going to tell us how to do Oregon wine? Did you feel like they were accepting of you coming in and doing what you wanted to do, or did you feel they were kind of maybe scoffing or, or, or critical? I think both. Um, there was some skepticism. Uh, I had to prove myself that I wasn't some coattail uh, underachiever, mm -hmm. uh, but I believe with my passion and my, I, I spent seven days a week planting the vineyard. So financially, we were, my brother-in-law just didn't hand mega dollars over, which was a blessing in disguise. So as a result of this very tight budget, I couldn't hire Oregon Vineyard Supply, mm -hmm. at that time Mark Benoit, mm -hmm. Uh, to come in and plant our vineyard. I couldn't uh, hire a wine man. Well, at that time, we were just going to be a grower. Right, right. I literally had to plant the vines myself, prep the field myself, build the trellis myself. Mm -hmm. And as a result, uh, I gained respect from my colleagues. Mm -hmm. But I think there was, yes, skepticism and uh, at first. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I was young, dumb, and full of energy, and so um, nothing was going to get in my way. Sure, sure. So you're planting a new vineyard and you're also, you also worked some early harvest at Ponzi. You mentioned Dick Ponzi earlier. Uh, tell us a bit about how that came to be, how you started working with him, and, and sort of what you gained from that. So that vintage was 1988 vintage, and uh, I reached out to Dick and said, are you, Dick Ponzi, and I said, are you looking for a cellar hand for harvest? And, and he agreed to take me on. And so at that time, Ponzi Winery, which was located in the old location, mm -hmm. Beaverton, mm -hmm. uh, it was a very small winery, and uh, Dick was totally in charge. His children were still in college, uh, and um, 
So I became Dick's seller guy, grunt. And so in 1988, I just did all the grunt work. Mm -hmm. Punch that down, clean that line, dump that bin, process that fruit. Mm -hmm. He showed me basically, and basically with my, I liked work. I'm a, I like physical labor. Mm -hmm. That was in 1988. I worked there from 1988 to 2000, uh, to 1992. So what, 88, 89, 90, 91, 92. Mm -hmm. Five vintages or four vintages. And by the end, uh, he was willing to share his passion and his insight into making great Pinot Noir. And uh, by the by the harvest of 93, I was on my own. 92, he was the, I was the, still a grunt, but we made 40 barrels of wine mm -hmm. from my vineyard, mm -hmm. shipped it over to the Ponzi, the processed the fruit at Dick Ponzi's, mm -hmm. fermented it there, filled the barrels, and brought the barrels back to the newly constructed uh, pig barn slash now winery. Sure. So that so eighty eight then was that your first harvest experience anywhere? Yes. Okay. What did you think of it when you? When I loved there? it. <laughs> I mean, I would work nineteen hours a day. Um, I'd last leave the winery, making sure all the floors are clean, the hoses are coiled, um, and uh, and then I'd drive home. You know, it was a. 25 minute drive home and I lived in a little house now my field worker Omar um, works there uh, lives there now mm -hmm. but uh, I loved it mm -hmm. you mentioned by the end as you were kind of gaining Dick Ponzi's respect he was he was sort of sharing with you some of his passion and some of his was there something in particular that you learned from him or things in particular that you learned from him um, well yes um, First of all, uh, whole berry fermentation, mm -hmm. uh, gentle extraction, um, punch downs. Um, he used his own Ponzi yeast. Uh, it was a proprietary yeast. Uh, the use of stems, he experimented with that. Mm -hmm. But basically it was getting really good fruit from good vineyards. Mm -hmm. um, and processing them in a minimalistic way mm -hmm. and punching down, pijaging, as the French call it, um, twice a day. Uh, then once the fermentations were dry, pressing them in a basket press, mm -hmm. a Wilma's basket press, and gently putting them into high quality French oak barrels. So that was the basis of what we did here for the first few years, and we slowly evolved to our own style. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned as you were kind of setting up, you were doing all the work yourself in terms of planting and, and getting it going on your own vineyard. Um, how did you learn? Was it learned by doing? Did you, did you do a bunch of research? Did you, or how did you figure out how to plant grapes? Actually, there was a manual out, an Oregon Grape Growers Guide, first edition. I think it was a 1983 edition, and it was a. It's a great, and I wish I still had it because I literally wore the book out. But I studied that and read that and um, asked questions, and um, I can remember having it open the first year. Um, and uh, after they were grew one year, and now two budding them down the second year, looking at the book and with my tijeras, my clippers, and looking and clipping, <laughs> and just, um, and also there was a gentleman by the name of Jamie Tombaugh, who uh, was a, well, quite a unique individual. He, uh, a genius, and he dropped out of, uh, he was on, uh, he was at some president, oh, Kennedy administration uh, on the think tank, mm -hmm. I believe, and he just got tired of inside the beltway kind of 
tactics. And so he came out to Oregon and he worked for Bethel Heights and David Latt. And he and I struck a friendship and he helped me prune. Uh, and so together he and I pruned the vineyard for the first five or six years. Mm. It would take us a month and a half. But we had great times philosophically discussions and you get out there and you prune all day long. Um, it was a very, in, very endearing time for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but so, the help of colleagues mm -hmm. and also being connected with Robert Parker opened a lot of doors in Burgundy. I went to Burgundy. Um, I um, talked to some producers down in California, mm -hmm. Steve Dorner, mm -hmm. who worked for Clara Vineyards. Uh, he was helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, Dick Ponzi, of course, um, come to mind. Sure. As you were getting started, and, and, and you, like you said, you started, you wanted to grow grapes first, you eventually started making one uh, out of necessity. <clears throat> what were some of the, were there obstacles that you didn't foresee that came, came to be, and how did you deal with them? I, mean, I assume you had kind of an idea in your head of how this was going to go. What was it that came about that surprised you? Uh, early success. So, uh, our first vintage, 1992, we released it at $45 a bottle, mm -hmm. which was almost twice as much as what others were getting. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Dick Ponzi was very upset that he felt that uh, I was making a major marketing blunder, mm -hmm. that it won't sell. Uh, but my brother-in-law assured me that uh, if we create a nice newsletter, by the way, this was pretty revolutionary at the time, if we created a nice newsletter and uh, he, was, he provided a mailing list, 6,000 names from the Wine Advocate, and we um, described our inaugural vintage, 1992, mm -hmm. we talk about how it's a state grown and it is aged in Francois Frere barrels and it's um, you know giving all the attributes without too much puffery mm -hmm. uh, that it should sell and so we my wife and I drafted the letter and we mailed out uh, 6,000 or 6,200 addresses in the spring of eight, 1980 in 1993 mm -hmm. um, and lo and behold about two weeks three weeks later I think we generated over four hundred thousand dollars in checks instant success we took that money we never we have never borrowed money wow. we took that money and reinvested uh, with New equipment, mm -hmm. uh, a processing line, a destemmer, some barrels. Uh, we added on to the winery. We've added on to the winery at least seven or eight times. Uh, just kept reinvesting, mm -hmm. living. You know, financial money to me was never, never been a something I strive for. Mm -hmm. So, and my partners never really were interested in pulling money out mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so we just kept reinvesting planting vineyards buying more land so to answer your question the biggest surprise was success at a very very sure um, early on so I'm assuming so you sold those people came back and bought the next vintage too. That would be the big test, right? If they if they bought it once, that's a good test. But they came back and bought the next year's too. Mm -hmm. I assume. We slowly growed, grew. Um, you have to also remember Oregon, the industry itself. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, was beginning to get some traction in the national market with Domaine Druin. Uh, shortly after we did, we bought in '86. I think they bought in 87. Mm -hmm. That certainly brought a lot of attention to Oregon. Domaine Druin buying a, a French company buying into Oregon. That certainly had a sure. positive 
um, spin to the industry. Even the fact that Robert Parker was involved in a project that certainly opened doors, mm -hmm. uh, brought awareness, public awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, 60 Minutes had a the the paradox uh, of red wine, and they came out that that year with uh, why is it that the French have lower heart disease than the Americans when they eat a lot more fat than the Americans and it was the benefits of red wine drinking mm -hmm. that had something to do with it mm -hmm. uh, again the 1983 and 1985 vintage in Oregon was very very strong mm -hmm. um, so good timing yeah. <laughs> timing luck dumb luck um, let's talk about your winemaking philosophy you mentioned a bit earlier what you took away from what you took from Dick Ponzi and you said you it has evolved so what would how would you describe your winemaking philosophy now and, and how has it developed over the years so in the early years with my brother-in-law's influence um, I made wines with as much extraction and new wood uh, that I could that so that what that meant was picking the grapes very very ripe mm -hmm. over 24 bricks mm -hmm. the yields very very low for super intensity fermenting them with pigeage physical pigeaging mm -hmm. extracting macerating fermenting at a temperature with enzymes that extracts uh, color pigments, mm -hmm. putting them in a high percentage of new heavy toast barrels was what made Beaufrere um, different than other wineries. As I was progressing and learning and becoming more my own winemaker, I realized that I preferred wines of more elegance. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so over a number of years, slow changes. So instead of in inoculating with a commercial yeast and using an enzyme for color extraction, mm -hmm. I use native yeast and no enzymes. Instead of picking at 24, 25 bricks, I went for 22 and a half, 23 bricks. Mm -hmm. Instead of a predetermined yield per plant, I realized that some vintages you can get higher yields and some vintages you can you need to get lower yields based on flowering based on bud break and flowering mm -hmm. so the earlier the bud break and the earlier the flowering the more season you had to ripen the grapes so you could get more tonnage sure. conversely if it's a late bud break a late flowering you have less season, so you better use less crop. So it wasn't just a dogmatic level. It was a, a, a yield, I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, just making wines of more elegance, more finesse. Mm -hmm. Uh, you're, we talked earlier before the camera started rolling about your sons. Your sons have followed you into the wine industry. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about them and, and their roles in the industry? So I worked personally with my son, Mike, mm -hmm. Michael D. Etzel, not Junior. Um, he is the winemaker and the viticulturalist now. Mm -hmm. um, and I am grooming him to take over the operation. Mm -hmm. uh, he's my middle son. My oldest son, Jared uh, M. Etzel, <laughs> is managing I don't know if he's managing partner. He's the winemaker at Domain Roy, mm -hmm. who was my other business partner. Uh, and he's making wine over there. Also, he has purchased two small vineyards, or he has purchased two small uh, acres and, have, and is planting grapes for his own personal project sometime in the future. Mm -hmm. My youngest son is an electrical engineer, uh, and yet is a brewer. He makes beer. Sure, sure. So three boys. Were you surprised they followed you into the industry? Uh, 
It wasn't in, so when they entered college, they all went to, they're beavers, they all went to uh, Oregon State in Corvallis. Mm -hmm. uh, they weren't sure where they were going to go. Mm -hmm. But uh, I provided, and uh, in, in, there was a uh, Eric Solomon with um, an importing company in Spain provided an internship for them. And so they went to Spain during their one of their freshman or sophomore year in college and worked to harvest. When they came back, they had the wine bottle. There was no question about it. Uh, they experienced one of the great cities in Europe, Southern Europe, Barcelona. They fell in love with the food, the culture. And so that is what did it. Mm -hmm. Now during summers, uh, they worked for Doug Tennell, mm -hmm. Brickhouse Vineyards. Mm -hmm. He was much more tolerant with their shenanigans than I was. Uh, he permitted them to be teenage boys. Mm -hmm. That meant uh, doing stupid things on a tractor, jumping them, you know. Where I would come, sh I would grill their ass for being foolish mm -hmm. on a tractor. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, they were exposed to the wine industry the whole life. They grew up here, uh, and it, it, it is now in their blood. Mm -hmm. And you and your wife also have a label, a sequitur. Uh, Correct. Tell us how that came to be. Well, my, my Jacqueline um, passed with cancer mm -hmm. in 19, uh, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and uh, I remarried uh, three years ago, four years ago. And uh, my new partner and I purchased 60 acres next to the upper terrace and planted a 12-acre vineyard. Mm -hmm. The idea was a retirement brand, something we could have fun with, something to pass on to our children. Mm -hmm. Good heavens, midlife crisis, starting a winery, a vineyard and a wine at mm -hmm. 60, I'll be 65 in a month. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, um, it was a beautiful piece of property. Uh, the gentleman who sold it to me made me jump through hoops whether or not I was worthy of his little beautiful uh, 60 acre. Mm -hmm. He used to s spend time in the woods uh, and I remember one time I was hiking. I'm a walker. I hike all over. Mm -hmm. And I come across him, and he's in the in the forest. His name was uh, Frank Doomer. Mm -hmm. Lives in Dayton, not far from here. School teacher. Mm -hmm. And he invested in properties. And this one, he was sitting in the forest, and I said, My goodness, what are you doing? And he looks around, and he says, I'm watching my trees grow. Anyway, uh, I pursued him to sell me this piece of property. He's an elderly man. And after many cups of tea, he sold me the property. And so on that, uh, I carved out a little 12-acre vineyard, which right adjacent to the Upper Terrace, Beaufort Upper Terrace, mm -hmm. a property that we acquired in 1999. Mm -hmm planted a 12-acre vineyard called Sequitur. And we make 500 cases here at Beaufrere. And we sell the fruit to Beaufrere um, to, in their program. We also sell to Walter Scott, to Coattails, my son's other brand, and to Hundred Sons, another brand, wine brand. Mm -hmm. Why Sequitur? Why the name? Mm -hmm. My wife was in the law business, and non sequitur, excuse me, was a term that lawyers use when arguing a case. If the if the line of argument didn't make sense, was not logical, that's a non sequitur, meaning it doesn't follow. It just doesn't make sense. Sequitur, which is not used very often, uh, it is meaning uh, it's sequential. It's next. It follows. It's logical. Sequitur. Like it, like it. So you mentioned uh, selling to Beaufrere, which seems kind of odd. But you sold Beaufrere, uh, always part of the 
you went through a sale a couple of years ago. So tell us a bit about that process. What made you decide to sell and how did you work out what you were going to sell and what you were going to keep? Uh, I did not choose to sell Bowfrayer. My two partners did. Mm -hmm. And because we're very profitable, the selling price was based on the goodwill of the, comp the brand and the assets. And it was way more money than I was willing to, uh, like I said, I've never borrowed money. Mm -hmm. I don't borrow money. And I was very uncomfortable to borrow the amount of money that it would have required to buy those two partners out. Mm -hmm. So we hired a broker. The broker was very well connected. Uh, he brought a number of clients by and I, um, basically was either very cordial or very rude, depending on the client coming by. Uh, if I didn't think that they were compatible, uh, that they would take my beau frere mm -hmm. uh, in a proper direction, I was very rude, arrogant, rude. Conversely, if that client was what I thought would be a, a very good next step, mm -hmm. First of all, none of the buyers wanted me to leave because of the nature of the business. Mm -hmm. They were they wanted me to stay on. And so depending on what their future plan was for the brand, mm -hmm. depending on how nice I was. So Ario, a French company, believes in family mm -hmm. uh, and they just completely had the same vision that I have for this company. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they purchased my two partners out mm -hmm. and purchased a small percentage of me, mm -hmm. at my, my share out. And um, so we are a French-American company mm -hmm. uh, with uh, some interesting uh, projects in the wings, in the works. Mm -hmm not large production but uh, just again pinpoint uh, focused uh, projects. Mm -hmm. Did you have a, uh, a previous relationship with the company at all? Did you have any relationship at all before no, they came? first time I met them. What was it, what's it, what was it, you, said, you mentioned they had the same vision, what was it about them specifically that made them the people you wanted to trust your company to? It was funny because Gilles, who is a family member um, of the Oreo group, which owns Bouchard and William Fev and a, num a couple other brands, a very, very well-financed, uh, very well-asset-based organization. Uh, first thing he said was, uh, I'd like to go see the vineyard. He didn't want to see the books. Uh, and the first thing I said is, Yes, come walk. And so we walked up in the vineyard and uh, we talked about um, the importance of Beaufrere, the heart and soul of it. Mm -hmm. It's the vineyard and the people that work here. Mm -hmm. And uh, it wasn't about exploiting the brand, blowing it up to 50,000 cases. It was about maintaining its integrity, refining its integrity, uh, incorporating it into a French organization. Um, and so it was because of his, he and I had a vision that was identical that I was more than eager mm -hmm. to join partnerships with. Sure. What, and so how has is is that transition been going? Beautiful. I got a call from Richard, the CFO of the whole organization this morning. They were just finished a board meeting. They're nine hours ahead of us. Mm -hmm. He calls me at nine this morning. The board has approved all our um, future plans. Uh, and he was elated, he was happy, he was... Sure. Um, yes. So they uh, believe in my son, they believe in me, they believe in, in the people that I have working here. Mm -hmm. I have a good team, a really good team here. Mm -hmm. You mentioned some projects on the horizon. If you're, if you're at liberty to talk about it, what, what are you hoping, to, or what is going to happen here in Beaufort in the future? What are you hoping to see? Um, do I want to reveal some of them? You uh, can talk more generally, too, if it's not Well, perfect. we would like to purchase some more vineyards. Mm -hmm. 
um, we would uh, possibly make a wine in Burgundy mm -hmm. from a vineyard that they own. Um, uh, those are some discussion points mm -hmm. in the future. One thing we don't want to do is um, overexpand or get distracted. We have a very, very strong client base and customer service mm -hmm. um, and paying attention to detail. Mm -hmm. uh, we farm biodynamically, which is a very detailed, driven practice. And so certainly don't lose sight of how we got where we are, mm -hmm. and yet how can we continue to be talked about mm -hmm. um, in a positive way. Sure. Mention biodynamic. Um, how did that come about? How did you decide to be a biodynamic farm? Uh, it was a combination of many things. I, I, my good dear friend Doug Tennell with Brickhouse, organic, biodynamic, I don't know if he was biodynamic at that time, certainly organic. Mm -hmm. He talked about how easy it was to farm organically. Mm -hmm. uh, I, at that time, in the, uh, in the 80s and early 90s, I used Roundup, pre-emergence, systemic fungicides, mm -hmm. um, because that's what I thought was responsible farming. But I realized that it's not responsible farming, that it's, um, cost-effective farming. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I started researching organic and went in one step further into Rudolf Steiner's teachings of biodynamics. And so in 1990, in 03, mm -hmm. yeah, 2003, uh, I started off in a small block uh, in the Beaufort Vineyard and had a consultant, Philip Armigné, mm -hmm. A very respected, do you know? Have you heard of him? Uh, bio, <laughs> a, a very respected biodynamic counselor, mm -hmm. and we tiptoed into it. Uh, this, and I loved the, and became organic at that time. Mm -hmm. Now we still practice biodynamics, and we still practice organic farming. And yet we're not we're not certified. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a lazy, poor bookkeeper, and it requires a lot of um, record keeping. We don't market it. We don't market ourselves. But um, I have seen a vast improvement in the quality of of our fruit based mm -hmm. on the practices of biodynamics. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit about your future plans here, Beaufrere, and, and obviously you have your sequitur grant as well. So what are you what are you hoping for in the future? What do you see as you look for at yourself five, ten years in the future? Hmm. Well, uh, I just recently purchased another 56 acres right down the road in the flatland. Mm -hmm. There's no grape ground, mm -hmm. but there's a beautiful old barn mm -hmm. that I'm going to turn into a winery to, um, and also there's 30 some acres of, I'm gonna turn it into a wetland. So I'm going to do some environmental um, improvements in the wetlands in the valley down here. I'm gonna restore an old dairy farm where I grew up. I started my career in, in, in uh, my summer jobs, I shouldn't say career, <laughs> as, as a dairy farmer. Uh, so I have a very, very warm, kindred heart for barns, and so I'm restoring the farm into what it was 50 years ago. But instead of a dairy farm, it's going to be a winery, but it'll still have the feel of a dairy. Sure. Um, it'll have a silo, it'll have hayloft. The hayloft, though, will be offices, and the milking Holler will be um, a tasting room, things like that. Sure. So you won't be bored. I won't be bored. You know, my son just had a son, mm -hmm. Jack, mm -hmm. who hopefully third generation, maybe. Who knows? But he's not even a year old. So uh, I love the profession. So and I'll be 65, as I mentioned earlier. I don't plan on retiring. 
I'll retire when they bury me on the property next to my wife. Yeah. What are you proudest of as you look back at your time in the industry? What? What are you proudest of as you look back at your time in the industry? That I didn't become an alcoholic. Uh, that I learned the ways of Mother Nature, respecting um, all aspects of living forces, mm -hmm. from the microbial life in the soil, to the oak tree off to the side, uh, to the individuals that work for me, mm -hmm. respecting all aspects of life, mm -hmm. um, not exploiting. So I think my biggest accomplishment is just being aware, um, learning how to meditate through walking and being involved in um, with nature, watching the seasons um, and the different beauty in all the seasons. Um, if you saw my home where I just my wife and I just finished building. Uh, it is in the center of 60 acres of forest, nestled down into a uh, very, there's dug fir trees everywhere. Uh, we built our home over a pond and it's, and it's always got some function going on. Like right now, ducks are coming in, wood ducks and magansers coming in and eating the tadpoles. We had massive tadpoles about a month ago and now none, zero. The ducks ate them all. I'm assuming the ducks ate them all. They were coming in. Uh, we have rainbow trout in there. We stock it and blue herons and, and um, American bald eagle, e eagles swoop in and eat them. There's one trout left, big old guy, smart. <laughs> uh, so observing, I'm proud of the fact that, you know, I can, I love nature. Mm -hmm. I am going to get involved in more environmental issues mm -hmm. um, because I do believe that uh, we, all of us need to do our share in reducing, for lack of a better word, our carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It means don't eat as much. You don't need to eat as much. Don't drive as much. Um, carpool, um, bicycle, hike. Use paper instead of plastic. Um, support things that make sense. Um, Get involved. Make your voice be heard. Don't let big industry dictate the future of our children. I shouldn't get political here. It's okay. I appreciate the passion. Um, what are the you, you? You mentioned your timing in terms of you, you hit right as the wine industry was starting to become something, right as Domain Druin was coming in and things like that. What? are the biggest changes outside of just pure size that you've seen in the Oregon industry since you became a part of it? Corporate, big corporate uh, investment. The Jackson family. Um, there's some California big money, mm -hmm. Joe Wagner. Um, certainly the AVA fragmentation from the big Willamette Valley to what, nine new AVAs? Um, you know, has that been good? Well, it has been for Ribbon Ridge because it's really a sought-after AVA. Mm -hmm. I think there's now a little, possibly a little jealousy between some AVAs versus the other. Mm -hmm. So the big changes, maybe a little competitive, a little now as our as our industry matures, the camaraderie and the borrowing of equipment is not so prevalent as it used to be. Uh, you know, more proprietary, like, did I answer that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And and as on the other on the flip side, as you look into the future for Oregon wine, what do you see happening in the next uh, ten or twenty years in the industry? I believe that we will continue to be known as a place to grow Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Chardonnay is becoming very, very a big factor. Mm -hmm. um, I believe wine will be uh, will continue to be a dietary supplement, uh, a food addition to the table, and therefore Oregon will continue to grow. Uh, I think uh, with not only grow in wineries but in support industries like spas and restaurants and related industries to tourism mm -hmm. um, I just foresee a very bright future I see young people coming in like the both two of you bright and sharp and talented. Uh, I mean, our industry has a lot of very talented, young, uh, healthy people coming into it. And that feeds on success. That feeds success. Sure. That's all the questions that I have prepared for you. Uh, is there anything else I should have asked that I didn't? Anything else you'd like to mention here at the end? Not to, not to my knowledge. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time and your answers. I would really appreciate this, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.